I'm speaking with a lot of really cool people today. Um, I'm just going to go down to my left. I have Aaron Frank, uh, followed by James Blaha, Manish Gupta, and Steve German. German, yeah. Yeah, all right. I got it on the first one. Um, thank you guys for joining me. Aaron, you're with Singular University. James and Manish, you guys are Vivid Vision. Um, and Steve, you do your thing. And DVR guy. Yeah, I like your style. Um, indie, yeah, you're working on some really cool indie VR projects. Um, okay, so before we leap off into the unknown, gentlemen, I know there are uh, there is a bit of a, you know a curiosity as to what you guys are doing at this point in time in terms of your projects. So I'm gonna start with James Manish. Um, how is Vivid Vision coming along? Um, and you know, just give me the quick, uh, quick and dirty as to you know what what, what you guys been up to. Um, yeah, Vivid Vision, we uh, are in vision therapy clinics now, um, a few uh, across uh, the country, um, and uh, we're actually in a couple um, universities here and um, in Europe. Uh, and then we also have the study still going at UCSF. Um, I think we may have uh, some... Um, uh, the first results coming in, then they, they look pretty good. Um, there was a small poster presentation at Arbo. Um, so yeah. Which is an ophthalmology conference, big ophthalmology conference. So nice. Uh, yeah, our collaborators at UCSF just presented kind of the initial results from the very first group of people. And very nice. It looks pretty good so far. So, What are some milestones that you guys have for this year? What are you trying to achieve? Uh, we're hoping to finish the study, definitely, uh, get it into more clinics, kind of exp expand the number of clinics, um, and, you know, just prepare for this uh, CV1 release now that we finally know the date. Um, so, you know, we have a good at least nine months, pro probably more. I'm assuming it's going to be later than what they're saying, but, um, you know, just kind of prepare. So that's kind of, I guess, more of next year's goal, but those are our big things. Sweet. And Mr. Aaron Frank, and by the way, Vivid Vision, you guys are using virtual reality to treat la uh, lazy eye and other uh, types of eyesight uh, conditions. Um, and now, Aaron Frank, yep. you're with Singularity University. I am with Singularity University. What are our, uh, what's, what's cooking up in the Singularity University kitchen in terms of virtual reality these days? Yeah, um, so I feel, we were talking earlier, I'm kind of, kind of an outlier here in that, you know, I'm not a, a coder, a programmer, but... Uh, where I, I, something I've been experimenting with in terms of communicating what Singularity University is, I kind of think of it, it's, com it's almost like a flea market of ideas. It's like the place where, you know, people come to like the city center and just kind of exchange, you know, what they're working on, you know, people that wouldn't normally cross paths. So, you, you know, you got biotechnologists and people working in robotics and AI and machine learning. And, uh, and so VR in our little flea market world is very much, they were like previously these like crazy little, um, you know, crazy lunatics over in the corner building, building their, uh, you know, wild concepts. And, and now people are starting to, to pay attention and, and look over there to that part of the, that part of the, the marketplace. Um, and so there's starting to become a huge interest in our community of, of really understanding the implications of where all this stuff is taking us. Um, and so, so me personally, I'm actually, I was talking with, with, um, these guys before, uh, looking at, uh, I'm going to be, I'm actually going to be giving a presentation next week to a bunch of what I imagine will be a room of suit wearing executives that have never seen an Oculus Rift or maybe even heard of it. Uh, and, and try to talk about some of the implications of this stuff beyond 
you know, they'll, they'll assume gaming and entertainment, but it's like, you know, like these guys are demonstrating is way more than that. Mm. So we're, we're curious to, to ponder where this is all headed. Nice. Very nice. And Steve, you are involved, do or die, VR or die in virtual reality these days. How did you, how did you wind up in this neck of the woods, man? Oh, well, I, I talked to a lot of people and tried to figure out what would be cool to do. And, um, I'm a coder, and if you want to do coding, your choices are fairly limited. You're either doing desktop coding, web coding, or mobile coding, or game programming, which is related to VR. So um, I was traditionally a desktop programmer, but now I've decided to uh, do something more interesting. I think VR, using game engines, is is a fun thing to try, so that's what I'm currently doing. Do you think there's something to game engines? I feel like uh, we've had this discussion before. What, you know, what is it about game engines that are that that is so you know uh, appealing to you? Well, first, first of all, game engines are, are great because they're the only cross-platform tools where you can write an app and then deploy it to all the platforms: mobile, desktop, um, all the consoles, Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo. So. That's a great thing. That, that's, there's no other tool that you can really do that except for web technologies. But, um, you know, game engines are, a, it's like a blank canvas, I think. I'm hoping that I can uh, use that to create anything. I feel you. Yeah. And, so, and so now we're here, we're here gathered, uh, about to talk about things that uh, the simulation does not want us to talk about. Um, and, and so, uh, it, by, and by the way, by the time this po- podcast gets published, the CB1 details will be revealed um, up and down the line. So I feel like that sort of uh, speculation will be sort of fruitless since we're a day away from that. Um, it seems and, like most of the details are pretty much already revealed anyway. There's yeah. not too much. Well, by now we would have found out that that leak was, you know, that was completely wrong. They, they leaked that on purpose just to draw draw attention away from what was actually happening. So now, yeah. So, yeah. so, so now we, we we'll all know about the brain control. That's yeah, yeah, actually. yeah. Wow, how amazing is that? Wow. Let's start with that because that's exactly where I've been meaning to go eventually. Um, and we'll, we'll just start with brain control. James Blaha, Aaron Frank, Manish, Steve, how far are we away from um, being able to control thought and memory? Um, through through these interfaces, through the HMD interface, will that be the interface that will allow um, human thought control? I, well, so using thought and memory to control? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, what they're doing now with uh, EEGs um, seems like they're really far away. Uh, if they're going to do it through, you know, um, detecting the, the magnetic fields, um, I feel like that might be impossible. Uh, they have to, you know, have some sort of other technology hooking directly in into our, our, our brain somehow. Yeah, I think it's kind of a spectrum. Like, uh, your brain's controlling your fingers to move, to type the keys, you know, and then when you're EEG, or, or if it's really muscle movements on your head, your brain's learning to make these minute move, movements that you're not consciously aware of in order to control things. And you could do that right now with EEG, um, so that, that feels a lot more like brain control, even if it's kind of not exactly brain control. Mm-hmm. But I think you can only get so far with that probably. And, and like he was saying, you probably need some kind of an implant to get like what you would conventionally think of as brain control. Interesting. So in my, my, my idea of brain control is using 
you know, narratives to channel people in different directions. So it's, it's not necessarily tapping straight into the brain and, you know, messing with your synapses and your, you know, neurons. It's, it's, it may, or maybe it is, but it's more like using some form of procedural storytelling to channel you to stop thinking about why you're unhappy for some reason about a certain thing. I don't know. Um, is that is that too difficult to achieve? You know, because I feel like the most, the most one of them. So I've been watching Sword Art Online, <laughs> this anime that's been kind of popular lately, and it kind of grows on you because I was like at first I was like I don't get it. This is weird. Um, but it, it, but it, the more you're on it, the more, spoiler alert, the more you realize that the ultimate, ultimate, um, I think the ultimate dilemma of virtual reality is at one, at some point it's going to get so good that we're going to have to choose between being free agents or living forever. And virtual reality will give us that, this, like, like that. Will, will give us that fork in the road where, you know, I don't know if we humans will ever live with world peace if we still have free will, quote unquote. What do you think? Like, do we need like some form of, you know, this universe of distractions to keep us from, you know, falling into well, our primitive sides? I would, I, I would just, I mean, the que- so the question, I think it's an interesting question. Like, will we? You asked, like, how far are we? away from brain control and you're de- and you actually just gave a definition in your mind is using narrative to steer the behaviors of, of an individual like depending on where you draw that line like we already we already live in that world i mean if you think about what a marketing executive is it's when i see a you know lebron james holding up a can of sprite like literally in your brain are neurons firing wiring you know your behavior to you know walk past you know a store with sprite cans so so vr is just the latest in like a long 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 history of brain control and you know and what's really fascinating to consider is how the immersion aspect of of virtual reality i mean we really we don't know i mean we're at the very crude beginnings of learning how being immersed in a virtual environment actually impacts our our neurobiology like how it wires our brains like stanford i think has an amazing research lab looking at just this i think the coolest the coolest thing about the stanford lab is that it's not in their school of computer science it's in their school of communications they study the idea of i have something in my brain and i want that thing to be in your brain virtual reality is just a new way of doing that how how does that operate so like Mm. we already live in the world of brain control we are like it's just it's just the latest edition of it. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe what we need is like a if the if the EEG or whatever could tell if you're having if you're happy or if you're having a positive response, and then the computer would give you more of that, you know. So maybe it's, I don't want to have to think about what I want. I want like to be given to me, and then I can like give it feedback saying, "Yeah, give me more of that or give me less of that." Maybe that's maybe that's the future. It's kind of a reversed thing where I'm just like giving a thumbs up or thumbs down. And the AI or whoever or the computer is feeding me, but that, but but eventually it, it it knows what I want because if I get really happy about something, then it'll steer me towards more towards that. Maybe, yeah, that's, maybe that's what we're thinking. I think that's eminent. Like, eminent there, yeah, there's yeah. like multi sensors, like the the Sammy wristbands, the Samsung thing, and they, it has like EKG, uh, heart rate, skin capacitance, and you know through Bluetooth to whatever you want to connect it to. And if yeah, if you if what you want to tell is their uh, kind of their mood. 
kind of their their kind of simple reactions to what you're showing to them, um, and that's definitely going to be happening. Yeah. And will be more powerful than stuff we've had before without knowing that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've just been I've been reading a little bit of Bolt by by Peter Diamandis, and um, that 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 book is really interesting because it, it it's really been a good place to start from in terms of uh, you know the Internet of Things is going. And, you know, you, it, Peter is able to, you know, tell you why the Internet of Things is important to, you know, infinite computing and why infinite computing is, in, in, is, 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 um, is, is, is tied to artificial intelligence, how artificial intelligence is tied to, like, all these other different things. It's all connected, and it, it's, it's interesting to see the world become connected in this way that it's never become before. And... Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. Like, where does VR fit in into all of that? Then you know, like, in a world where we have trillions of connected devices, um, you know, is this is, is that what the like is that what the metaverse is going to be like? You know, augmented reality being able to visualize the connectedness of all these devices, or is VR just a distraction from all these different things? Where where do we where does VR fit in into all of that? What do you guys think? That's heavy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we were actually we were talking about. I'm actually curious. Have you ever have you ever read the book What Technology Wants? No, by Kevin Kelly. We were talking about this. We had kind of a mini podcast before we yeah. before we got here. <laughs> yeah. So I think I don't know. I feel like this is this is kind of a cool. All right. So so Kevin Kelly is a is a he's a futurist um, who wrote who wrote a book. Uh, where it's a, it's kind of an alternative perspective to viewing t- the progress of technology. So the basic sort of standard assumption of how progress unfolds is, you know, we come up with ideas for things, and then we choose which things we want to go build, and then we go build them. And so all technology is the product of, like, us choosing to go design and build, you know, technologies are like this extension of us that we can use to manipulate the world. So what Kevin Kelly in his book basically takes the opposite perspective, which is no. Actually, technology is this almost like a super organism. It's, like, it's, it's a life form. It, it behaves by the same selection pressures and cosmic forces of evolution that have sculpted and molded. Maybe the, the easiest way to see it is when you're looking out of the window of an airplane when you land in any you know, big city. When you look down at the, the buildings and the, the roads and the lights, is you're looking down at this like physical being. So like we're as an example, we're talking about think of a road. So you know, so we get in a car and we drive. So we're, you know, human beings. We're you could think of us as like stored packets of information. We go to school to pour knowledge into our brains and then we get in, so then we graduate from our, you know, knowledge factories and go to our workstations where we sit in a, you know, place where we are all of our jobs are designed to build or manage or maintain or um, develop this thing, this this technological superorganism, and so it's actually this one big giant entity. And so the question that he asks is like, okay, so those those roads are they there for us? Are they there because it needs them to exist? And it's this like alternative viewpoint. You know, it's yeah. yeah I think um, if if you take the the point of view that everything that happens is natural is a natural consequence of physics seems to be true uh 
it, I, I, this is kind of um, implied by Kurzweil's law of accelerating returns. So, you know, if, if evolution is just a special case of accelerating returns, and then technology is another special case, and then you know, artificial intelligence will be uh, maybe another special case if you count it separately from um, that. It's really all the same thing of complexity being able to build on complexity as it's able to store more information and use more energy coming onto it uh, more efficiently, basically. And that, so why is all of this technology coming up and becoming so powerful just because that's what happens when you leave hydrogen alone for you know, 14 billion years or whatever? Like, maybe there's no other explanation other than that. It's like inevitable. And yeah, and then because you're asking, so like what's the role of VR in this big thing is like, well, it's really like, I don't know, I guess that triggered a bunch of alarm bells in my head because like it's unclear like it's mm-hmm. like we think we're building vr because we want it like mm-hmm. we want this stuff like we want to you know we, like there's of course amazingly favorable reasons why we'd want it like vi- vivid visions are a perfect example of that but at the same time there's always with any new technology it's always been true there's always you know a downside or risk associated and so like what like you said what like what is it there as a diversion is it will it replace is it something where we just kind of go and get like saddled into the corner with our VR boxes and, and the, the machine then just, you know, builds itself from there. And then, you know, we've been taken care of. Well, one role of VR could be to eliminate travel, you know, so maybe all that energy being wasted to go from a point A to point B could be, you know, reused just to power VR headsets and people get to stay where they are, where they are. And it's safer and, there are more telepresence robots roaming around conferences nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. The VR will make that way better than a telepresence robot. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would, I would have loved to have a telepresence robot at that event we went to last weekend. It would be great to pop into that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we were at a camping event, and it was. I thought, wow, well, if I wasn't here, I wish I could at least you know, peek in and see, see what everyone's up to. Yeah. That would yeah, be telepresence drones, telepresence robots. I mean, eventually, we'll, everyone will just be meeting up in VR, right? Once yeah. the eye track, once the the body tracking, the eye tracking, and the the voice is high enough quality that I believe that's that person, like it fools my brain into believing that's that person. Mm-hmm. Then why would you travel to meet that person? Like, why? Like, just both pop on your headsets. It's going to be better for the environment. You're wasting less time. Like, it's just going to be better. What are the so then, so my concern up to this point has been just the just making sure that the that the metaverse, quote unquote, you know, this AR VR, you know, thing that is being formed is is free and open for everybody. Um, I am I, concerned about you know walled gardens and things like that, and and you know the you know the the fact that people don't care a lot about their privacy. I, I feel like sometimes I'm screaming into a crowded room where no one's listening. Like, hey, hold on, dude. They're t- looking at your dick pics. Really? <laughs> <laughs> like John Oliver went to, yeah. to see Snowden and that, like that, that rings to people, I feel like. And that, it's true. Uh, will, that, that, will that spine just become more visceral in the metaverse where, you know, like... Have you guys been tracking the Silk Road? The Silk Road. I follow the lot yeah, yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. following it. It's crazy. Well, it kind of just comes back to this point of privacy. I, there was a documentary. Uh, this filmmaker 
he tried to come in with an unbiased view, not pro Ross Albrecht, not anti, but trying to, he was very pro that point of let's slow down and consider the privacy implications. Mm -hmm. Uh, No one really knows how the FBI found the servers and, and it's a really questionable, you know, mark on this whole case. And, and it's basically where, you know, the, the laws and rules governing, let's say privacy in the physical world, where you can't just like copy and paste those into the digital world Mm. and then they'll apply. And that's a, I mean, really fascinating to think about because this is really the wild West. Like the the learning that has to take place is going to create some chaos and turbulence for the short term. It seems like. Yeah. I, and you know, I want to be open-minded too. Like I don't want to feel dated, you know, because I know there's going to be younger, a, a younger generation before me that is going to do different things and adapt differently to VR, right? And so I want to make sure that I'm not like that. I, yeah, I don't know. It, it, that's the thing. Like we don't know what's going to pop up. Like what people are going to start doing with this thing. It's that's that's what's so exciting and fascinating. Um, here's so let me switch. Like uh, let me switch the conversation a little bit and I had this con- I had this moment with my girlfriend where um, and this uh, this might get a little personal she has she her father passed away a long time ago and she can't seem to be able to get um, um, find solace or find a, you know a proper grieving and and I I've been with her throughout her grieving process and after years of, of seeing her grieve I realized that I don't I take my father for granted because he's alive. And it, what this reminds me of is like I'm part of the generation of people that want to live as long as they can. Whereas like I don't think my dad wants to live forever. You know, like I, I there's people in his generation who don't even have that in, in their minds. Yeah, a lot of people don't and, if you ask them. And so now. I, I, we're like arbitrarily <laughs> instead of forever. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you hit an age, you know? We're like, okay, like, all right. So it's not really that. It's, yeah. it's, do you want to choose when you die? You yeah, you, yeah. you could die. live... Yeah. Mo- like, who would say no to that? We could all agree we'll probably live a lot longer than we're <laughs> yeah. currently living. Like, living forever starts to blur the line of... Some, so but definitely... But, I, but say, the point, point's well taken. Yes, yeah, so I'll definitely say where, like, I want to live really long and... What I realize is, you know, I'll, I'll probably miss the people that I've grown up with who don't want to live that long, the longest. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're going to be that generation or we might be the first people to, like, you know, lose contact with our red, de- red like, with our debt relatives for the longest ever. And that's going to be really interesting. I wonder what that is going to do to our psychology. Um, and, and, like, you personally, do you guys want to, you know live 150, 200 years and leave your parents or your other family members behind for an extra 100 years or something? Is that like, is that something that would change or affect your decision to live those, that, that, that amount of time? Well, it depends how the bills get paid. I mean, yeah. If <laughs> yeah, there's money in the future. Well, it's a yeah, longer you don't have to work. We're assuming a jobless utopia, jobless utopia here yeah, with healthy jobs, living. Uh, you're not going to get older. <laughs> you know, you'll be in the in the the metaverse where you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, and other people can do whatever they want as long as it doesn't interfere with you doing what you want. 
how does that happen, James? Like, we, 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 we constantly talk about, like, you know, we're, we're going to live in this society where things will just get a little better and we're going to start working a little less and every year we work less and less. Like, you know, how does that come about, especially in the clusterfuck world that we're, we're in? You know? I don't see a way for it to transition. I, I don't see a believable way for it to transition where it's not going to suck for a lot of people. Mm. Like, first, almost everyone's going to lose their job and that's not going to be good. <laughs> Right, and the system is not set up to allow that to happen, and so you know there's gonna there's more wealth every year on you know the total wealth, but the disparity is getting larger, and I think that's going to continue to happen. And unless some big political change happens in the meantime, um, which you know there's pe- a lot of people talking about basic income, which is pro- is seems like at least a decent solution. It's a, it's the simplest solution. It seems like it might work. You know, we should at least be talking about these things. Mm-hmm. And they probably need to be happening on a time scale of 10 to 20 years. You know, like, if, if everybody doesn't have some kind of income or at least housing, health care, food, you know, there's got to be a ton of suffering, even though the wealth is so high. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like given an abundance of wealth, we should collectively be able to figure out how to achieve that. But the time scales are going to be, things are changing so quickly and governments move so slowly that I don't think I don't think it's going to catch up in time, and it's going to be a problem, you know. And how that problem resolves, I have no idea. But it's probably going to be violence or or suffering in, in some way. It's probably I don't know. I guess I'm not so optimistic about that. Governments and late and uh, legacy corporations, right from the 20th century, who built their wealth on, you know, yeah, just. I mean, I totally. Agree. I think whatever. So I totally agree with you. I think that what's happening. Where it's it's one of those things where we're living through it now, and it's kind of hard to see as you're living through one of these like transition points. But we're going to see, I think, an accelerated era of turbulence, like society wide chaos and turbulence. And I think the solution, unfortunately, really does have to include quite a bit of policy. And just like James said, is the the infrastructure today is not set up to learn and absorb all of the changes yeah. at a rate to keep up with it. Uh, you know, at a personal level, like the human brain has, it's got two, it's got two speeds. It's got, you know, it's got the fast part of the brain that processes things. You know, we're learning more and more about how quickly you can actually process things. And then it's got, you know, an emotional part, which is where things like ethics and morals sit. And those are the, the speed of, of that processing is measured, not in like microseconds, but in like, you know, minutes. And, and I think at a society level, government by design is supposed to be that emotional, slow processing, which is, I mean, there's favorable reasons we have it, but in the world today, there's, it's just, it's getting just pummeled with like the waters are just getting choppy and choppy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think I kind of agree. I think there is going to be a lot of suffering Mm -hmm. um, to get us from where we are now to where we want to be in the future. Is the biggest obstacle to that, like, to that, um, so the, the biggest obstacle to a, a peaceful transition is, is people, like, it's, it's people who are entrenched, um, for example, I remember having this conversation with a really wealthy person once, I ended up in this random Christmas party where I was talking to this random wealthy person who, um, admitted to be, like, a one percenter, and he was, like, and I was I was rambling because I, this is what I do. I ramble about climate change and how, you know, 80% of human population lives within coast and how there's, you know, it's accelerating and the methane, you know, coming out of Siberia. And he's like, you know, I, I'm not worried. I'm just going to lock myself up in my 
50-story uh, penthouse. And I was like, I was speechless. I couldn't believe that this person was just saying that. Like, you know, I, I'm just going to sit out the problem while everybody is drowning below me. Like, But unless it's like Bill Gates' level of wealth, he probably can't really change it either. Right. You yeah. know, like... I would, I would also caution against saying people. So it's, I think, I think the challenge is that people in different parts of society just respond to different um, influences and different incentives. So like wealthy people just fundamentally respond, have different interests and different goals and different motivations. They're not better or worse. They're just different than other parts of society. Just like, you know, someone in the middle class, you know, has different motivations incentives, etc. So, you know, like rich people, like I think the human nature is to like point the finger at like the person it's, it's, instead of like the sit instead of the situation. So I would caution against saying people are the problem. The problem is that we're all responding to different incentives. And so if we can align incentives, which is what we're seeing with, you know, the rise of, cl you know, climate shift, like mm -hmm. climate shift does not care how rich or poor you are. We all respond to the same incentives of we need to stop pouring our skies full of toxic fumes and, and carbon. And so that's where you find common ground and where you find common ground, you can make measurable change. That's yeah. That's, I find that I find that to, I find, I find myself agreeing with that. And I think that more more importantly, I feel like incentivizing involves economics. So so the way we solve climate change is through an economic solution. Like we got to implement some form to some way to incentivize people to shift, change their minds by telling them like, hey, the alternative is cheaper, it's easier, it's simpler. Like That's a Tesla car, like, yeah, yeah, like a solar carbon penalties. Yeah, but getting everyone to adopt it's the issue. Well, the other, the, the I mean, the strongest motive, the, the strongest economic motivator that's been proven to actually solve things is just the seeking of profits. And what's really fascinating, this is something that at Singularity University, we're collectively as an organization really having this you know, philosophical discussion internally about what and who we want to be as an organization. Because many of our many of our partners, learning partners, are you know large corporates that. You know, if you were to poll them, you know, what motivates them? It's not cleaning the air and solving poverty and eradicating disease. It's their shareholders. They're, they're, they, are, they are structured to, to satisfy the, the needs of their shareholders. But what's really fascinating is there's incredible work. Uh, like Michael Porter is a researcher at Harvard who looks at um, this idea that it's actually the profit motive is the single biggest element of any institution's ability to solve big problems. So like one example he points to is in Brazil. There's a company that uh, creates tree pulp. So they make paper from trees and their old business model was to cut down the rainforest. And that was where they got their tree pulp. But because of emerging technologies as we've injected better sensors, new business models where they sort of uh, crop share with local growers is it's now better and more economical to grow fast growing eucalyptus trees. And that's where they get their, their tree pulp. So it's now literally to their to their shareholders' benefit and their economic bottom line to not cut down the rainforest. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll start to see more and more examples like that where it's not a company being some, ch you know, charitable donor. They're, it's a company, you know, seeking profits. And there's tons of money to be made in making the world a better place. And I know how hippie, cliche, Silicon Valley that sounds, but no. I mean, as capitalist, red state... You know, Republican, you want to get like there was tons. There's a huge market opportunity. Tons of money can be made 
in solving these these grand challenges that we're faced with. Yeah, I think that's how you should argue for basic income because the government can give it like the, okay, if the government taxes it from people and it redistributes it to people, and then there's this huge market of people with a fixed budget to fulfill their basic needs that big corporations can compete for, and they can get all that money back. You know, mm-hmm. so the argument would be. Okay, big corporations win because they'll, these are all their, they're going to be their customers, right? We're giving money to your customers to give it to you. Um, and the people win because they actually get food and health care and, and a place to live and the free time to actually do whatever they want to do, whatever that is, you know, go to school or be on the internet, self, self-learning self or do passions. art or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, it seems like that there's some formulation of that that's like a win for everybody. What do you think of the idea, like, someone's going to come back and say, well, I don't want to, I don't want my taxes to pay for someone's free lunch. You know, I, I want to, I, I earn my money. I don't want someone to be freeloading off my hard-earned dollars. How do you, how do you, like, sorry for that accent. But no, I was going to say, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> clear statement in the accent you chose. I'm so sorry about the accent. <laughs> All your listeners in Kansas have shut this podcast <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, doesn't everyone get the basic income? So maybe you give yeah. taxes and you get it right back. I have no idea. How that yeah, everyone works. gets it e- equally. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would stop complaining at that point. Oh, okay. If I get some too, okay, I'm chill. But then, yeah. does it make sense to pay taxes? Though? Well, I guess you pay taxes and get it back, or how does that work? Yeah, <laughs> there's that. There's got there, it is. It really. Yeah, is. I guess it would. It would effectively not be anything for people paying lots of taxes. Yeah, it's it would really only be it if it was more than what right. you're going to pay in taxes. What, you, what would be interesting if you could do is just not tax wealthy individuals, but tax corporations. Right. But would, I don't know. If yeah, that's, that makes more sense because then the tax burden doesn't get crazy for rich people. I mean, or moderately rich people, let's say. Yeah, that's pretty much the opposite of what we have now, where most corporations have huge loopholes that pay basically right. no taxes, but wealthy individuals pay a lot of taxes, right. and people in the middle class pay pretty good taxes. And mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd probably get that pushback if it's like you're taking, if you're redistributing the wealth of, of wealthy individuals, but if you could, but yeah, the, if you solve the loophole challenge, you just tax corporations and then redistribute that. But that's, again, all the challenges to this are policy and. Yeah. Goes back to government. Yeah, because unless because because uh, unless we're we do something proactive about the AI economy. By the way, uh, like how much time do you guys think we have before you know the cost per per dollar of using robotic arms at, at Mickey D's and at Walgreens to give you service? It, it just completely obliterates what you can use for humans, right? Like. I feel like the Baxter robot is right around the corner to replace yeah, yeah. Your, your server and all that stuff. I mean, yeah, it just hit the price point where it might already be cost efficient to do that if people just realized it. That's so, so like, crazy. You're so, yeah. it, in five years, like people it's who like serve at fast food places, that's going to be gone. In like 10 years, all drivers, like 4% of all jobs right now, all drivers gone. Like, yeah, it'll be yeah. automated. And by then, probably anyone who writes for a living... Yep, that's Maybe even stuff like music and, uh, you know, there's all, like probably 80, 90 percent of jobs with, will be gone within 10 to 15. 90 percent of lawyers. Or yeah, lawyers, lawyers, doctors. So, you know, like why, why would you want a human diagnosing you and giving you surgery? That's like, that's a dangerous proposition. Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah that's true. Like it but shouldn't be like that and it won't be like that. For writing, do you think it'll, it, it'll actually 
come to that? Where I mean, stuff writing? like financial uh, financial reports are written okay. by AI. Already. Yeah, okay. Right? About, like, um, relatively create, simple things. More creative things uh, will probably be left to humans or no? We'll see how, how good they are. It's a, it's a, it's a lot spectrum. of like, expository <laughs> essay. Like, just the basic reporting stuff yeah. could easily be done. Did you guys see there's a, a really crazy headline that just came out last week about uh, a computer that that made its that created its own hypotheses and like developed some its own independent scientific breakthrough, like a research <laughs> study, completely on its own. Did you guys see that? No. I think I saw the headline on Dig, I think, but I'm not sure. So, so basically, so there's been this challenge, there's this question that science has been asking for like 100 years. I think it was related to flatworms and why they regenerate, so how you can, you know, chop off a worm's tail and it'll grow back. Mm-hmm. And so scientists have had basically, you know, limited understanding of how this works. And it took this computer, basically generated its own hypotheses, tried it, failed, and then repeated that, that step for three days and then came up with the answer. Completely on its own, like independent no grad students, you know, pouring through data to develop its own whatever. So, like, I mean, even, like, dis- like exploring breakthrough er- like areas of knowledge is now subject to the same thing you're talking yeah. about. Like, and even, like, just in the last year, computers are better at, like, uh, identifying objects and images yeah. than people are. Image context. They're better at reading Chinese characters than fluent Chinese speakers are. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been better at reading English characters for a while because that's easier, you know. Like Maybe. speech recognition, We're translation, yeah, live voices after all. <laughs> so, at what point? At what point can a society? At what point does society collapse into total anarchy? When you know, when these jo- when just jobs start going away, just like well, how much time do we have left? But that's what I'm well, trying to say. That'll probably be against the interests of the technological hive mind that develops, which is already developing. So it'll probably come up with a solution to stop the anarchy amongst us. I mean, that's, probably, that's the optimistic that's, outlook, right? Like, the pressure <laughs> increases enough that everyone responds and we fix it. I mean, I guess that's that's supposed to be the strength of humanity, is that if something starts getting worse, we, we recognize it, and the worse it gets, the more we put toward it and we fix it. Yeah, but I would say, like, we are just so easily distracted. Like, give us some cat videos on YouTube, <laughs> or, like the kardashians and we're good like well you know with like the the roman quote that cliche you know give them give them bread and entertainment and that was really how the roman empire was built they they forgot about all the social challenges that society faced bread so that blood sport. brings us back to vr <laughs> it yeah. does like, like what VR. is this like what are we going to be using it for yeah i think that's that it comes back to the same thing i always keep Talking about it, I mean, it our economy. arbitrary biological needs. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're going to use it for. I think, you know, because if we're going to look at stuff that humans feel good when they look at it, yeah, we're going to listen to stuff where we feel good when we listen to it. Yeah, I mean, that's what we do on TV. Yeah, as long and, and it's not going to be expense like the resources to give the like to give us our basic desires of you know, some, you know, novelty seeking, a few, you know, squirts of dopamine to the reward center of the brain. Like the resources to do that a hundred years ago were like immense. Like think about the complexity of, of how we entertain ourselves today. It's, it's like we stare at a, a glowing box that, you know, uses less electricity than, you know, an entire diesel engine probably used like a century ago. Like, mm-hmm. So it's not going to be, expensive so i don't know i i don't I, I hope we don't devolve into anarchy but i could see a clear path to never really getting to that point 
Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in terms of just, you know, what are the, you know, what is the next form of superintelligence going to look like? You know, past the AI economy. Like, are we going to see a human cyborg hybrid, uh, or is it going to be a hive mind? Like, what do you guys think is going to come first? Will, will it be, you know, a D-wave quantum computer at Google that's going to wake up all of a sudden and say? <gasps> so the person who knows the most about this right now is Nick Bostrom. He wrote a book about it, which is really, really good, and everyone should read it. And before then, I was pretty optimistic. I was like, yeah, it'll be awesome. I'll just make cool stuff. And now, like, he, he did a good job of convincing me that it's going to just, it's probably going to be bad for humanity. Oh, it's going to suck. But yeah. So chances are it's not going to have a good outcome for humanity. Walk me through that. Give me more on this. Why do you think? The basic argument is that all the incentives right now are for some corporation to get something basically working with the simplest goal possible. So there's going to be some group of programmers in some well-funded place where they say, okay, we want to get this algorithm working. We're seeing good results. We just want to get it working. So what are we going to test it on? Okay, we're going to optimize some simple thing. So Google will say, okay, let's say Google wants to optimize, um, let's say they want to... um, you know, control the upgrades to their computers, to their server farms, um, in the best, most cost-efficient way possible. And they're just trying to optimize that cost efficiency. And so they make some algorithm that's self-improving, and they finally get it to work. And so it starts self-improving slowly, but at an exponential pace. And before you know it, it's just way smarter than any human that has ever lived, and it still has this simple goal. Or it changes its goal, and its goal is arbitrary. And so either way, under under kind of the default expectation, the default way this will probably go down, it, it there's no built-in safety mechanism for caring about humans or, uh, you know, caring about what goal it has or goal integrity or, or any of the thing, many, many things you need for it to be safe. I mean, it turns out there are a lot more ways for it to be dangerous than there are for it to be safe. Because we have a pretty specific way we want the, our, our planet to be, you mm-hmm. know? Like, we've, we can only exist in a very narrow range of, of ways, of, of how it could be. Yeah. And so if you have no control over its goal, um, or it has some very simplistic goal, mm-hmm. um, then you should expect that to be dangerous for people. And unlike human tyranny, where human will rule over a certain amount of land for a designated period of time until their body expires, um, AI tyranny could last forever, right? Because it just would never die and so that's the gamble we're playing with because if we get it wrong once that might be it right we might not be able to reverse it yeah and it's just this general principle of the universe fills itself with the things that copy themselves the best you know and so like beneficial ais probably won't be the best at copying themselves so like it only takes one error or mutation or rogue programmer or whatever uh, to make one dangerous AI which wipes out the rest, right? Because you, you wouldn't expect a benevolent AI, I mean, unless you're specifically programming it to watch for that and control it, and you, you get there in a safe way, you know, but it seems like that's really, really hard to control everyone on Earth to, to do that safely. But you know how nature, nature has a way for protecting itself against this type of, of challenge, which is like a runaway self-copying thing that just destroys its host, which is just diversity, biodiversity. So the more diverse some ecological system is, one thing doesn't have and it doesn't have the capacity to overtake the the whole. 
And it seems like where AI is going, like the, the design that you just, you know, as an example, use of Google creates this AI that optimized for improving its server farms. I mean, that's a very narrow, specialized thing. And I feel like AIs are today, they're, they're speciating. We're creating this ecosystem of, of, of biodiversity amongst AI. And so I ha- I'm going to go back to, uh, and I know this is probably too much Kevin Kelly in one podcast, but he just gave a... Um, he gave a talk at the, the Long Now Foundation. Uh, it, I heard it as a podcast. And one of the points that he makes in, in updating his argument about this, this technic, technic, technological superorganism is that we already, the hive mind, we already have created this thing that's far more complex than we really understand. There's all, we already live in a world where most of this being, like I use the example of the roads, most of the, the technological superorganism is invisible. There's more data being created from machines talking to machines. There's, you know, 100 billion clicks, you know, per second. There's billions of transistors around the world. I mean, financial markets talking to other financial markets already run the global economy. So this thing is already kind of this, like, intelligence. And I imagine that this thing will have some way, and we may not envision what it looks like, of creating resilience or immunity for you know, one speciated bad actor AI in the system. I don't, I don't know if we can infer the future behavior of a possible AI based on the fact that it hasn't happened yet. I mean, maybe the Fermi paradox is an argument that it is dangerous, right? Or, or maybe it's not because it would have spread through our uh, galaxy already or whatever. Um, I don't know. It's possible. I mean, maybe it's we get to... You know, maybe civilization in our universe is so rare and so precious that not many, you know, forms of life make it to the stage that we're at. And then it's just far too, there's far too many dangers. Or maybe we have, like, we we forget that progress on, even on our own planet is so more mysterious than we really know. Like, like, like development just, it ebbs and flows and it cycles and it comes up to this techno being and it devolves down into back into you know biology and or just complete destruction with asteroids and it's just the universe just bubbles up and it bubbles down and it mm-hmm. you know it's it, it's just this natural course so you're you're so what you're talking about in terms of like civilizations that are at our stage in the universe or the galaxy you know what i'm wondering about is you know so we're at this stage you know how, what is the next stage and how do we get to that next stage what you know and is that a way to, you know, give AI goals that can be, you know, targeted towards a certain direction? And because and, I feel like right now we're all just trying to, you know, give AI, you know, goals. You know, we don't really actually we don't even know what goals to give AI, right? And so, should should we as a human species have a conversation about what sorts of goals we want this god creature thing to have, right? Because and and I and I'm on that fence of we're like all right well maybe maybe that that's the role of AI to take us from the stage we're in right now to the next one and I don't know what that next one is are we going to become interdimensional consciousness floating around in the ether of the internet I don't know or are we going to become uh, you know immortal never dying I don't know um, is that is that a way to look at like what we're supposed to do with AI? Like, what are we supposed to do with this thing once it becomes, like, born? 
Yeah, definitely way more people need to be talking about how to do it correctly. And now's, now is the time. <laughs> like, the results people are getting are, like, just too impressive. And you can see where it's going. And people need to be thinking about this, like, right now. What, what do you say to computer scientists? Like, I've spoken to people who, like, really, really smart people who are computer scientists. Who I bring up the subject of, like, hey... You know, what do you guys think about, like, artificial intelligence and where it's headed? And they're like, nah, don't worry about it. It's not something to be worried about. Have you seen our code? Have you seen our software? It's total crap. We can't possibly build, you know, this, a godly entity through, you know, we can't. And so, like, how it's do you... It's linear thinking. Yeah. It's that's linear that's thinking. Exactly. That's, ex- yeah. It uh-huh. sucks in the beginning until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it happens fast. And then when, when there are gains, people act like it's always been like that. <laughs> like yeah, I remember like like I, I I read The Age of Spiritual Machines and it must have been like two thousand and two or something like that. And it talked about automatic translation, you know, uh, where you would speak and then it would translate it and say it. You know, and at that time that was insane. Like no one thought that was ever gonna happen. Nobody, you know. And and we pretty much have that right now. You know, like that works pretty well right now. Uh, even going so far as like one of the demos, this was a, a recurrent neural network where they used one neural net to, to take his English speech and uh, translate it into Chinese live. And then they used a separate one, which made it his accent. So they trained it on just him wow. to produce his the accent. Phonemes and wow. everything. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Wow. So, like, that's where we're at today. Personalized translators. You know? And that's, like, 15 years. It translated years. Chinese, English to Chinese and spoke it in his voice. Give me David Attenborough voice. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. And at that time, you know, in 19... In the 1990s, Star Trek was saying this would happen in 200 years or whatever it was, or 300 years. Um, and it felt that far away. Yeah. And the iPad was in Star Trek. It felt that far away, you know? Computers talking to you felt that far away, and we're there, pretty much there now. Google's going to be like a Star Trek computer in a few years, probably, you know? Tell me more about neural nets. Like, what are you uncovering about them that is giving you all this confidence in where it's headed? Like, what is it about the neural nets that you, you know, that, that gives you this, you know, this certainty? Um, those results you can get from, I don't know. So there was, um, recently, uh, an article on GitHub, I believe, on someone's GitHub. It, uh, it was a blog post, um, and it was titled, uh, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Recurrent Neural Networks. And, um, basically, uh, he has a tutorial on how to, how you can set up, um, this and train a neural network, recurrent neural network on a Linux machine. Um, we both did that, me and James. I trained it on Game of Thrones, um, all the Game of Thrones books. It was uh, so it just took text as input, and then it would uh, I had it output. Um, you know, after seeding it with a certain phrase, I had it you know try to complete the, or just generate characters, and it was actually making sentences that made sense. They didn't really make complete sense, but just from you know. Uh, three hours of work, I had a computer writing something that, you know, each sentence kind of sort of made sense. And, you know, you would recognize, oh, this is, he, it's trying to write Game of Thrones. And just for a little bit of background, the way it works is you, you feed in uh, a starting sequence of letters, in this case, and it'll predict the next letter one by one. 
So it's built, including spaces punctuated. Like every character does it one by one. Okay. So it's just kind of getting, it's statistically figuring out what's the most likely next letter based on different levels of memory, long and short term memory. And by just feeding in the, the six books of Game of Thrones or whatever, is it six, five books? Yeah, five books I of Game of Thrones. It learns English building it at a character at a time, including punctuation. Yeah. It learns like paragraph structure. It, it'll have dialogue going back and forth between people with correct grammar. Yeah. You know, and maybe the dialogue doesn't exactly make sense. Like it's not quite there, but with enough training, it could. Like you wow. could see that. Wow. And, and we're, that's just an off-the-shelf library where you read a blog post, spend a couple days on it, training and you could do that. Five you books. Know? That's like nothing. You know, five books. <sighs> that's insane. And that's and that's and you guys believe that this is growing exponentially. These neural net capabilities are. Yeah, I mean, I I did some work with neural nets about ten, nine years ago, I guess now, where I was teaching it. It was training to play poker online. And at that time, when I had a question of like, okay, how many neurons should I put in this layer? How many layers should I have? They'd be like, well, just try anything. Nobody knows, you know. And now when you have these questions, they're like, you can compute it this way because you need to look at these parameters, and then when you train it, there are these numbers where you compare them, and then you can adjust it. And so, like, the amount of work that's been put into the theory part of it is just so much more than it was back then. And there are so many flavors of neural nets for different kinds of problems. Um, it's just, it's it's... It's progressed so much in the time I've seen it. You yeah, know? it's so much more accessible. It used to be yeah. just, you know, all of this information, all of this stuff was going on at universities, but now, you know, people are writing blog posts about it. Hey, here's how I did this. And then anyone can do it. Yeah, just clone it off the GitHub, use the commands. They wrote the documentation. Like, it's... Wow. It's it's not, like, something that's inaccessible anymore. Super easy. What if it became, like, like is, is this something that could become accessible to the masses, as in, like... You know, just like navigating Facebook, people eventually will be able to, you know, work a, a neural net to their, to their, to their pleasing. I guess, right? So, could is that possible? To... In the same way, Photoshop is available to the masses. Mm-hmm. That will be like, like not everyone, but anyone could learn it given enough time. Or like about photography it, used to be a really complex thing, and now it's just Instagram where you can get really sophisticated filters. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, I think things it, get democratized. It'll be interface. increasingly automated. You know. What would that do? Like, what would what would what would what would happen if all of a sudden the masses had the you know the keys to neural nets at their disposal at any time? Like, we have Google searches. I, don't know, I think as each one of these tools evolves, yeah. it addresses some problem set. So, like, recurrent neural networks address a certain problem set, which involves like you predicting new um, new output based on a history of input. Right, which is like a lot of problems. Can I ask a really dumb question? What are you What are you referring to specifically when you say neural nets? The library that these guys have been using um, to so it's like very very loosely modeled on how the brain works, but it's way simplified. So and so it's basically just uh, a collection of neurons, which are really just stored values, set up in a specific way where the values uh, feed into the other nodes, the neurons that so they're like connected to, based on a set of rules. Or... Um, it's an algorithm, really. It's, okay. it's just, uh... So it's like an, is it, it's an AI? It, it's something that might be a part of an AI. Yeah. It's, it's machine learning, definitely. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like a machine learning algorithm. Okay. Um, you know, one of many. Yeah. Crazy stuff. 
holy crap. We probably shouldn't talk about it, but I'm just curious. Uh, did you guys see Ex Machina? Dude, I was yeah. about to yeah. bring that up. Oh so good. Talk about it. So Can't good. Spoil- I mean, no, I would, I would fully urge if anyone's yeah, listening right now yeah. that yeah. hasn't okay. seen this movie, stop this podcast right now. If we do want to go into it, it is, do not let us ruin it for you right now. Okay. It seems like it's brilliant. So the most on point it's movie about AI I've seen. Can I say fucking cool? It's yes. Good. Yes, it's fucking cool. No yeah. cursing. We haven't cursed yet on this. No, I so, have. I have. So oh, don't worry have. about it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Don't, don't blurt me out. This movie is fucking good. Yeah. So, yeah. Is it out of the theaters now or where is it? It's in theaters. It's still in it's theaters. It's been in theaters for a little bit. Yeah. Some people yeah. I've talked to have seen it on plane, airplanes, so it's on like certain okay. like airlines. Okay. So, I also wanted to mention Cargo. That's like, I think it's Finnish or. Cargo, what's that? It's like Swedish. Swedish, maybe? Yeah. Swedish. Some Euro- Northern European country. Huh. But, but you saw it? Not yet. Okay. That's but I don't mind if you spoil it. No, we really shouldn't talk about it then. It's yeah. amazing. Well, I'll just say that, like, whatever, whatever that thing is in our psyche that fears or is worried about this thing that, like, James is talking about that we're building that we really should be talking about today, this movie, like, brilliantly just captures and distills whatever that thing is in our psyche. That's that's yeah. like what that's, all I would that's, say. That's really good yeah, the final decision probably shouldn't be one extremely rich guy who's in charge of a big department. Like Yeah. We don't it should probably be talked yeah. about by way more people than that. Yeah, you know? exactly. That's <laughs> exactly. If so so why so my my thing is like, you know, at what point do we know whether we have you know, artificial intelligence, like, you know, is a Turing test enough? Will that be... <laughs> no, I, I was just going to say, so, uh, keeping on the ex machina, did you guys see, did you guys see one of the, um, the marketing, uh, marketing issues that they did for the film? So this, this to me, when I saw this, like, we always try to create these, like, fixed, like, lines in the sand, like, demarcated points. Like, once we've crossed that specific point measured by this thing, now we're in this, like, post-Turing test world of, conscious AIs where really what's happening is a much more gray, slow progression. So this ex machina, uh, one of their promotions was really interesting at South by Southwest. They had uh, Tinder profiles. So guys were swiping and it'd be like the super cute girl. Uh, they would swipe and it would always match with them. Uh, and it was, they didn't know it, but it was a bot. It was a bot designed to, to talk with the guy, like basic stuff like, Hey, what's your name? Like, mm. Oh cool. Like, what were you up to? Like, just like enough. It's it was it was intelligent enough as a bot to make guys think that they were talking to a, a real girl. And so you read interviews in like TechCrunch or Mashable, the, the guys that when they found out, like they talk about like yeah, like my emotions were like toyed with, like it physically or emotionally, like like was so, like like changed or uh, you know I was affected by this by, by it was almost like a letdown that this finding out that this bot wasn't real so like we're already in this world where like robots are manipulating our emotions like we have already crossed that line that line has been blurred Mm. i remember the good old days when you used to chat with a girl online and it wasn't a girl it was just your friends on the other side who were just pranking you (laughs) (laughs) what happened to those good old days at least you you were sure they were a person (laughs) at least Uh, if you're gonna prank me at least be a robot (laughs) Yeah, there's four dudes on the other side, you know, listening to me, like, reading all my flirty, you know, 16-year-old pickup lines. Out, yeah. 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 Sharing it school. with yeah. everybody else, yeah. Oh, 
Those were the good days. So privacy issues were real back then too. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. were. <laughs> Oh no! There's no fixed lines. It's all gray. We live in a giant yeah. gray area, and so many things have surpassed humans, and so many things haven't yet. So the question is, like, which combinations of things which have surpassed humans makes it something you would consider to be better than a human, or at least better than a human at things you care about it being better than you at? What about human brain augmentation? You know, what does that brave new world look like? Steve, what do you think about, like, would you want to augment your brain, you know, well, how would you treat someone, would you treat someone differently? Well, if, I mean, the first augmentation is going to be, like, you know, ear implants where you can hear or not hear anything, anything, or, um, and then, obviously, pleasure implants, I mean, you're going to say, I want to be in the zone, or when I feel real good, I want to party, or whatever, or I want to sleep, you know, like, let's solve some of the, some of the common issues, hmm. um, so that'll probably be the first things. Um, like, right now, I always wear headphones on my desk, because it's just so much easier to to listen to things. So I'm sure at some point there'll be like a ear implant where you can tell it, okay, I'm listening to this guy speak and just, you know, filter these, all the other sounds out or, or record what I'm, record what I'm hearing for later or whatever. Induce a flow state. So I'm sure it'll start, it'll start simple like that, little things, and then it'll just become more and more, and pretty soon it'll be like, yeah, your head is whole, like, open up your skull and like start putting components inside there to make more room or whatever probably what's your take then on something like uh, so I like that a lot actually it'd be amazing if you had if your brain which is, was just this modular thing that uh, I mean like oh I mean your I ears and your little... eyes are like little com- like little plugs like there's like, yeah. like plugs you can plug into almost because that plugs directly into your brain so like yeah the, it's like a so I mean that's what the Oculus Rift is, right? Yeah, it is. That you're plugging into <laughs> yeah, yeah you're just plugging in your eye plugging yeah. in and yeah eventually It'll be, you know, go straight to the optic nerve, and then eventually you'll go straight yeah. to, you know, uh, straight to the brain. Yeah, yeah they'll offer, like, higher resolution if we, like, take out your eyeball and put in another eyeball, and then you got higher resolution. Yeah. yeah. And then the retina can rub off, or, or even better field of view, or whatever. and people say, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So what about something like uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, where you have, like, a, a electrode and a cathode, you know, electrode on your left arm and a cathode, I think, on your right temporal lobe, and you deliver... 2 milliamps of electricity to your brain and all of a sudden it has this really significant increase in your folk ability to focus, ability to learn. Yeah, I mean, those things work. That would be great. That could be like the get into the zone uh, thing that you buy. Like, if you want to get in the zone, put on this hat and then hit a button and boom, you're Working so you're thinking cap. Yeah. 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 The thinking cap is here, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Have you have you tried the TBCS? No, I really want to. I really, really want to. Like, if anybody's listening and you're in the Bay Area, please contact me. I will be your guinea pig. I we, want. We've been to. Building, meaning to build one, so we'll probably just build one. Did you, you order them on the Focus? Case. I have. We have one of those Focus headsets. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mm-hmm. might have. One. I actually, I think that I have one. I think I have one in my room. Next time I see you, did you try it? I have tried it. Would, would it, Is that, it feel any different? The uh, random stimulation or directed stimulation? It's direct. It's a TDCS. It's the the guy. I forget the guys who made it. It's this guy Mike Ox. I don't want to say the name because I guess it's wrong. Um, but it's a. I think he's. I think it's a British company. But it's a. It's a company. They basically built these. I mean, they basically built in their own house these TDCS machines, modeled after after the same ones that clinicians use. Uh, and yeah, I tried it at the neuro gaming conference like two years ago and I liked it. Like I actually, I felt this like sensation of like warm focused. It was, it was very similar to having just had a cup of coffee. It was actually very, it was kind of like, like Steve and I were talking before in our pre-podcast about like nootropics and brain enhancement. Like 
will we get to where we can just like instantly turn on mm. this thing? And like maybe this thing is close, but also we just don't know what the hell it's doing in the yeah, brain. Yeah, once the evidence is in. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I personally would not advocate. I, I, I would choose my, for myself not to, to use that because we just there's, there's actually emerging evidence that it, it does have positive benefits on certain parts of the brain, but it knocks out other parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. We just don't know. We just don't know what it's doing. Yeah. I know there's not yet any evidence of long-term harm once you stop doing it. So mm-hmm. there, there doesn't seem to be any huge risk for trying it out. But we don't know that for sure. And I also <laughs> saw the YouTube video of the guy who went blind for like five minutes because he put the electrode in the wrong part of the brain. Yeah. Like, yeah. You definitely get flashes of light sometimes when you when it turns on. You like, you'll, your vision will go white. Like, I've had that happen to me a couple times. Whoa. Where like, and it's 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 sudden and it's quick and you can feel it. It's like timed with the, the burst of electricity you can like physically feel on your forehead. But yeah, it goes away. And then over time, it just it becomes this like soothing, soft like glow of of like atten- like focused attention. Whoa, whoa, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I really want to try it, Dude, yeah. but I but I'm, but thank you for the warning. I will just <laughs> at your own risk. I mean, you know, try it out. Yeah. And there's there's evidence that uh, transcranial random stimulation helps with perceptual learning tasks. So um, it's like some, like what we're doing. So we we would expect if someone was doing transcranial stimulation while they're using our stuff that it would work better. Wow, and that's we, something we'd like to do. We have a user do research on doing that. Yeah, there's one guy who who is saying he 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 made his own and he's doing it and. Wow. So it just accelerates. But you know, one guy doesn't tell you anything. Yeah, if yeah. it's working well for him, it still doesn't tell you anything. Yeah. So. Uh, but it, there, there's good theoretical reasons for thinking it should help. Mm-hmm. So. I think we'll get better. I think our, our we're still at the crude beginnings. We just like we'll be able to enhance our brain far before, far earlier than we understand mm-hmm. how our brains are working. And I think we'll get better and better at that. At a, it'll be this exponential yeah, this trial and error of brain, <laughs> yeah, brain meddling exactly that we've been doing for thousands of years, and we're just yeah. going to continue to do. <laughs> yeah, where are we in terms of the human brain at this point in 2015? Like, where where are we in, in our advancements and what we understand? Like, you know, if if, if the ocean is 97 percent unexplored, you know, what about the brain? How much do we have yet to know about it? I think we're still putting on our wetsuits. <laughs> God damn it. It's going to be a long ride, huh? <laughs> it's all about hacking the brain, I guess. So we, we can... Uh, other than going through your ears, eyes, or whatever, we can't do much else except, like, maybe drugs or uh, yeah, magnetic stimulation. And we haven't really done much else but those two, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just don't know. We, we Honestly, like, any, any neuroscientist listening to this will, would be screaming at their radio saying like you better say we just don't fucking know (laughs) on on the other hand though it's not like we know nothing like i agree we don't know most of it but like there's someone who's genetically modifying mice so he'll go a specific kind of neuron and he'll modify it to put a photoreceptor on it that triggers it when light hits it and then he'll put an array of fiber optics inside the mouse brain and he can trigger that kind of neuron at that point in the brain and then he does it for each kind of neuron on different mice, and he's systematically figuring out what it all does. You know, like so it's called optogenetics. This this field of, of uh, research is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. The coolest, the cool. So it's just playing on that. So so James is exactly right. This is like the trippiest uh, era, like area in neuroscience at the moment. The coolest. Uh, there was a study. It was funded by the Dalai Lama, who 
basically using that application of, of you know, putting stim you know, basically you're controlling the synaptic firing in the brain of a mouse. Like so, so one thing, one benefit is reading the brain, so what's actually going on. But the other, the other element is actually controlling the brain. And so the Dalai Lama funded a research study where they basically uh, they they loaded these types of um, uh, receptive neurons to light in the part of the brain of a mouse where compassion sits. And so when they flood the brain, the cranial cavity with light and force fire those synaptic ner nerves, they basically have been working on creating these like uber zen compassionate <laughs> like buddha mice and understanding how that works and like that and i mean the ethical implications of that but like it's really fascinating i mean maybe it's the most ethical thing is to transform all mice to be like that yeah you know maybe the yeah. most ethical thing is to make as many mice like that as possible because you're make, just they're like super happy they're they're balanced like does it sound wrong if you say, then why don't we just make all humans to be super compassionate, super empathetic beings? I don't know. I mean, I think that's that's going to become a thing where, like, imagine being able to go to some place and choosing to, like, we're, like, I mean, this is really just an extension of the conversation that we were just having about controlling our brains. Like, mm -hmm. basically, our brains are, like, this giant control panel that right now we have no idea how it works, but we're going to figure out the dials, and we're just going to get more specific and accurate at controlling the dials to make us, hey, I want to, you know, I want to be in a focused state. I'm going to code and, and write, you know, my software today. Hey, I want to be in like a casual, like free mode. I'm going to a music festival. I just want to just, just take in everything and be like real laid back. You know, today I'm, you know, I want to you'll be able to control your brain state. Mm -hmm. I mean, who knows if what that world looks like, but we're maybe moving into that. A world without prisons or, or, punishment because people will would know better right or they would or maybe they would the, have the some prison is chaperone right you get to control your own universe and you don't have access to other people or something you know they, you can still can make fake people in your universe mm. you can still have a great life doing whatever you want like mm. it doesn't have to be about punishment but it could still be about separating people from harming each other oh instead of instead of just shutting down the those tendencies to cause harm to others just give them a whole universe so that they can cause harm to virtual reality only life forms yeah i mean all this stuff comes down to what is experience you know, like the really tough questions what is consciousness what is experience mm -hmm. philosophy what do we want out of it if i was a philosopher at some philosophy department isn't nick bostrom a philosopher isn't he a philosopher? Yeah. i think he's so like yeah maybe trained as an academic I, philosopher I think he's a philosopher with Kind of a these guys specialty in neuros for like the last four like, years. Yeah, I guess. They're like the weirdo beard growing, you know, poor hygiene, <laughs> you know, stuck away on some far side of campus. But like, <laughs> we're moving into a world where these guys are gonna, we're all going to be like showing up to their doors, like tell us what's going on. <laughs> Philosophy has like always been important. Yeah, it's like the strategy. My friend, my roommate, my roommate calls it the strategy department of reality. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I yeah. like that. Can you expand on like what, what that means? Yeah, like if, look at a business. The strategy department are like the people that are trying to figure everything out and that whatever they come up with like touches upon literally every other part of the organization. Like it all filters down out of the strategy department. Like a CEO, part of his role is creating the strategy. I mean, he's sort of a manager, but but the strategy part of his role, or if they have a strategy arm, is is figuring out the basic fundamental so what that then touches upon everything else. And mm -hmm. in philosophy, if you think about understanding like 
what is experience, what is consciousness, what is reality, what is really at the heart of you know mo the molecular world, and what are what is this thing we're experiencing? Mm -hmm. That and like what is goodness, what is truth, what is you know all the questions at the heart of philosophy are all those that then touch upon every other part of this thing we call reality. Wow. Let me ask you another question in, in the realm of philosophy. Like, what do you guys think it means to be free? And is that idea of what it means to be free changing, morphing as time goes on? You know, like, our concept of what it means to be free in 2015 be different in 2025, 2035? You know, like, how do you, what does that mean, you know, to, to be free? And uh, because I feel like, as technology gets better and better, you know, having the having the freedom to manipulate the brain also takes away some freedom in a in a different kind of sense, right? The freedom to just be let myself go or or be in a natural state. I don't know. You know, what do you guys think? Are you a free will versus determinist person, or have an opinion on that, or? So I always, I always like to have this conversation. Uh, I don't think free. I don't think we have free will in the way that people yeah, I agree. think think of it. I, I've come to, and I would love to hear a good well. counter argument. Yeah, and I challenge I everyone to come up to me and provide a good counter argument. I, um, I agree. I'm with you on that. So Sam, can Sam you even be free without free will? Exactly. I guess. I yeah. It's it. This comes down to the. The de you know labeling definitions. I don't. This is definitely a quote, but I don't know who said this. Like freedom is the ability to change your mind, and I think like that. Yeah, we definitely don't have that kind of freedom. I don't think. Yeah, and I feel like that is like if I if I want to like politicians are like they don't have that that they are not free because if they make a statement and they you know associate themselves to some political view, they are they, it's political death to then change your mind mm -hmm. they're not free mm -hmm. if i you know go to school and i become a you know a physics major but i want to change my mind and go become a biotech major because i've learned that physics isn't for me in a way i'm free you know i've i the, the the infrastructure has allowed me to change my mind yeah. and i don't know that's what's what's your argument james why why do you think we don't have free will and and munition Steve, feel free to jump in whenever. I just think that all the evidence we have so far points to a world in which um, things are determined by physical laws. And whether or not there's randomness in the physical laws doesn't matter. So, like, a lot of people get hung up on saying, well, if you, if you can't predict what's going to happen, then you have free will. If it's not physically possible to predict what happens, then you have free will. But if the random result of some quantum fluctuation is what determined your behavior rather than some completely deterministic billiard ball type thing which uh, determined your behavior, either way, you didn't have any choice in the starting conditions, whether or not you were born, what environment you grew up in, the input that's coming into your, your brain that makes you make those decisions. So I don't see where there's a place for actually being having, having had the ability to go one way or the other, to make a choice. And I think that's where it comes down to. If you could have wound back time, is there any way, whatever you think you are, whatever you are, to make that, to make it go the other way, 
you know, can, can a waterfall decide to flow a different way than the way it flowed? Mm-hmm. You know, probably not, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we could probably agree that a waterfall doesn't decide which way it flows. It just goes the lowest energy path. Mm-hmm. Our brains are following the same kinds of rules of following the lowest energy paths, you yeah. know? And so I, I don't see where it could enter in, you know? At what point would would you decide? What is you? How do you re- so how do you reconcile that? Like, you know, like doesn't that make you feel less like doesn't that take away some form of control in your mind of like or that or at least the thought that like you know i am the master of my destiny i am a human i am the most intelligent being in the universe that i know of and yet at the same time we're we're, we're not really like we're, we're we're sort of automatons in a way you know, like like how do you reconcile how do you live with that with the fact that you're we're not as as free as we as we think we want to be do you well, want we don't to? really have to think about it unless we're in this kind of situation right. where it's directly asked. Otherwise, we have this illusion, and we always have this illusion. Of and also, you don't have a choice of how. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, however, you determine that's how you like. I think in some ways it's actually like liberating to 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 believe that to know that you know if I it's it's very it, it's almost like a path towards finally understanding what you know the Eastern philosophies have been preaching of just everything is. Yeah that will be is, you know, everything just is. And, and, and it's almost liberating that, you know, the, the unfolding of cosmic progress is, is happening in the way that it's meant to happen. And, you know, you, your role in all of that is to learn. And, and, and I think what, what the cosmic unfolding is trending towards is, is more morality, more love, more goodness, more, more of the things that, are guiding where this is going. And, and we, through our, you know, waterfall path of lowest resistance are learning to become more like that thing that is, that is within, within us. And I think, you know, our role is to, is to do what's, what we know is or believed to be right and true and, and good. And, and, and when things go out off plan, it goes off plan. It just is. And I think it's a liberating, it's a liberating thing to, to know that, you know, you can control better. And to summarize James's, what, you know, James just said, it was, I forget whose quote it is. I can't uh, say it was, um, who said it, but is you can, you can do what you want, but you can't want what you want. And that's, that's basically the world that we live in. I don't know. I, I don't think, um, I think if it's true that things, it does seem to be true that things are getting more moral and better for everyone. But I think that's a total accident. Like, I, I don't think that, I think that's a ran, that's just what happened here locally mm. in this part of the universe. Interesting. And if you look at what has been happening, it seems like a lot of suffering in general, you know, like. So you don't believe here. that there is some ultimate, like, destination. There's not just, like, some I, sun. I think it's totally arbitrary. That, like, you know, the plant, the way a plant grows is it follows towards the sun. Like, it, it, it. it the, the, the path that it grows is towards this thing that it's connected to. I don't think it's towards, you know? There, okay. I think things, things change. There's, I mean, we don't know how big it is. So, like, it could be true that, the in, that this universe is infinitely big. It seems like it might be true. It could be true there are an infinite number of universes with an infinite number of combinations of physical laws. It could be true that everything that could ever possibly happen in any way, will happen at some point, and is happening now or whatever. Um, it could just be that this is one really super unlikely 
uh, outcome that happened to happen here just because everything has to happen, you know? Or, or it could be that this is, that this universe is how all universes are, and this is the only way it could be, and it tends towards something like more complexity, like the, the rules we see in this universe. But I tend to think, like, if you look at it historically, we always see uh, the universe, the more we find out, the more we realize the universe cares less about us, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And that's probably more true than we believe today, even, right? Yeah, it's, I guess, so it's basically, is there, like, is the universe taking us to some place, or the alternative is, is the universe more like, you know, you can think of it as like a dog in a park just sniffing trees, and it there's not really... It's not really a destination it has in mind. It's just sniffing trees because it's because it feels good and because it wants to. And it's just aimless, but it's wandering. Yeah, I don't That's, know. That, those are the two. Those are the two, I guess, options. I think all we know for sure is we get to experience stuff. Yeah, and that's kind of where I where I stop at the certainties. <laughs> you know, like I'm pretty sure, like yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm experiencing stuff. For a yeah. while, at least right now, like maybe it's just this one moment. I have a false belief, some like false memories, <laughs> false ideas of the future, or whatever. Yeah, that could be true too. But at least there's at least one moment that got experienced. You know, sticking to that path of least resistance idea, like wouldn't that like and extrapolating and correct me if I'm wrong, extrapolating in from that and bringing it over to AI, like wouldn't AI realize that? being the the most benevolent, the most collaborative path is the path of least resistance with us humans. And wouldn't that give us a little bit of optimism as to the direction where it might be headed? Or is there still a roll of the dice 50-50? What do you think? I mean, fighting us humans, I would imagine, would be a bit of a hassle, wouldn't it? Well, in the case James was describing, it was a very simple AI that was, you know trained to optimize mm-hmm. a certain um, a certain problem. And so there, it's not even thinking about humans. It would just be a side effect of it optimizing and, you know, becoming more efficient at what it does. A side effect would, might be, or probably be, you know, ending us. Yeah, so, well, yeah the argument is for a large range of goals, you might need resources. Mm-hmm. to like get that goal for a large range of goals you might need to protect yourself from being destroyed right uh so if an ai runs away and starts taking all the resources that will kill us right mm-hmm. if we try to kill it or, or try to turn it off or stop it or prevent it from achieving its goal because its goal is going to harm us in the future it may decide we're a threat and the best way to handle that threat is to exterminate all humans or whatever mm-hmm. so you there there are reasons why for almost any goal you would expect it to to do things that we wouldn't want it to do. Yeah, yeah, like trap us inside of virtual reality, right? keep us in there. That, that's that like, wouldn't that's be that bad. Yeah, that really yeah, would yeah, like cool be great. That to yeah. like <laughs> chop <laughs> my like it needs like everyone's left arm and it's gonna like chop everyone's left arm off. <laughs> and it's like yeah, optimized problem. Yeah. Back off, robot. Give me your give me your Oculus. Yeah, that, was, that was one of the examples in Nick Bostrom's book where he says, "Okay, maybe you um, you say, okay, I, I want uh, just I want it to make everybody smile. You know, I want it to make everybody happy and, and have everyone smiling all the time. So it figures out, you know, at first it's like showing them pictures of kittens." It's, you know, breeding tons of puppies and sending them out, genetically modifying, keeping them puppies. Everyone's happy. It's great. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, it'll be easier if I just, you know, implant electrodes in their mouth and make it a permanent smile. Then, you know, I don't have to do anything else. And then, you know, I can find them to cages. 
and I keep them alive in this state, and they'll always be smiling. It'll be the most extreme smile, and I'm just optimizing the smile, you know? I, I don't know. As, like, the more I'm thinking about this, like, hearing us talk about it, the more I, I think and realize that, like, n- like none of these none of these AIs are going to exist in isolation. It's not like we have this, like, boxed AI that if we let out of the cage, it's going to destroy us. Like, they're all connected back... Everything's connected. Like we live in a we live in a world where everything is connected, and no, like yeah, like one one AI may have this like super unfavorable optimization goal that just completely destroys the the system. But we have we have we we've seen that in the past. That's what like like a cancer is, and like we have a mute like the like the biology have all kinds of ways for for mitigating that. And like yeah, it causes a lot of damage and a lot of suffering, but. It, Ultimately, we like, we have ways of of mitigating these risks. Um, you know, we have immune systems, and and I feel like we're gonna we're gonna develop and build. It's gonna be again a lot of suffering, a lot of turbulence to get there. But I just feel like we're, like the system is gonna design ways to create fail to create ways of of securing against you know a runaway. By the way, whatever like, whatever AI does, this is gonna have to be a narrowly stupid AI. It's not going to be a strong, generally intelligent AI because it wouldn't understand that it's not beneficial to the to the system, to the whole. It's only beneficial to this one narrow thing. I don't know. I think just, it really, really yeah. depends on its goals. It really, like it... Like cancer it, does kill... I think narrowness doesn't matter. And I'm not sure if, um, if there are natural safeguards like what you're saying. I think by I think by default there aren't natural safeguards and we have to put them in place. Exactly. And I, but I feel like the that's incent- what we, we, we will be motivated, we'll be incentivized. Again, this technological superorganism will through our motivations and incentives create its I, yeah. its own I, I set of immune systems. Yeah, I hope that's true. I mean, I hope that's true. It has to be. And if it doesn't then we're gone and we don't get to experience this anymore and it doesn't matter. Yeah. <gasps> Man, I really want to party till <laughs> the end of the universe, guys. <laughs> if you could send a message to yourself 10 years from now, like, you know, Manish, you know, like, what would you say to yourself, like, you know, ten years from now, like, especially in the context of AI, Back to here, yeah, yeah, or like the from like, the future, like right now, I'm recording a time capsule, right? And so, what do you want to tell the James of the future of ten years from now? Like, uh, and, so and what, so, what do we, uh, what we tell our future selves? Yeah, the twenty twenty five. Are we giving advice to our past selves or like saying something to our future selves? Say something to your future self. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know. Because I feel the most one of the most fascinating things about like this you know technological progress is obviously the people behind it, the people who are involved in it, and it's I I you know and I'm just I'm curious as hell to pick at your minds to you know figure out you know your thoughts around uh, these these things. So I don't know. That's a random question, but I wonder like what do you what would you say? Probably want to think of something right now that I might forget that I would want to remember, <laughs> you know, like think about well, like think about what happened last weekend, Manish, like wasn't that fun? And then we went to a little festival. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. It's probably, yeah. Yeah. Something like that where I probably forget and then 10 years from now I'd be like, oh yeah. 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 yeah I remember that. <laughs> Forgotten all of that. Very specific. Remember like, what it was like before cell phone? It's a grocery list. Yeah. Remember that? And then like, people would be like, no, I don't. <laughs> That was weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, would you, what would you say to your future self, Steve? Like, ten years from now? Oh, I have, I have no good ideas. I mean, I can't think of anything really. I mean, 
It seems like the future self will know more. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say, like, yeah. I, I should be the king. Like, like, yeah. Future self, what didn't I know now? Like, why did you tell yeah. me? Right, right. Like, I, I have tons of stuff to talk to 10 years ago, me. Oh, yeah. I could go for hours if you want that. I, I did this in, like, fourth grade with my fourth grade teacher, and she sent us uh, the letters back. What? And, that like, a... I, that day, I think I just wrote about what was happening in the room, and I actually really liked it. I really enjoyed, because I could relive that, and I was like, holy crap. I, I could visualize. I had completely forgot what the hell the letter was. It was uh, from Mrs. Foreman. I was like, what the hell what was she sending me? And then opened it up. It was my handwriting, all these drawings. It was That was really nice. I really liked that. So just like capturing that moment and remembering it. I don't know what else you could tell yourself of value. Yeah, I mean, your that's cool. I, I kept a journal. I, I studied abroad when I was in university, and it was just like a whole four months of just the most ridiculous scenarios that you never thought a human being could ever find themselves in. And I was like, this needs to be recorded for like future me. And like all my friends felt the same way. So like, that's a cool example of like you want to store an experience because it's mm-hmm. interesting because if you store it, you can look back on as your future self and like, what did I used to think and what kind of person was I yeah. then? Yeah. It's really fascinating yeah. to, to look back on. How far are we away from that, from actually recording literally our experiences and then closing our eyes and all of a sudden teleporting to that memory like it was right here happening? There's an interesting uh, Black Mirror episode kind of about that on Netflix. Everyone should check that out. I was just listening to... What was it? Was it a podcast? Something about talking about that exact. I mean, the the data, the data being generated of everything we experience, like from taste, smell, touch, sight, is actually not that far beyond something within the realm of something that we could capture on a relatively small Whoa. device. I'm trying to remember where did I where did I hear that? Was it? I forget. It was a podcast I was listening to. Um. But yeah, that that world will exist. That sounds insane. That, that just the thought that I mean, we'll be able to like if we're not all dead. What were like, <laughs> black cherry warheads like in second grade? Like, what was that experience like in the lunchroom? You know? Yeah. Um, oh man, just live live that again. What was Chuck E. Cheese pizza like back when you were like the third grade? Yeah, yeah. Now it's just plastic. I don't know. I don't know. You guys ever been to Chuck E. Cheese as an adult? Not as no, no. Dude, yeah. don't go. <laughs> it's kind of depressing. Good to know. So I guess we're down to the final 10 minutes of the conversation. Um, is there any, like, thoughts that have been lingering in your mind that you'd like yeah, to... Yeah, I, I had a thought that I was going to mention. Like, yeah. I wonder if the first AIs will be some guy's business. Like, he'll make a program on his computer that's like an AI and it's and is able to make money somehow and then it's able to improve itself and make more money and then it's just like a... And then that... And then, 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 then people might copy his business and be like, okay, I don't know. I just thought that might be cool. Like if, if AI started as like little businesses and all of a sudden, I don't know how, does that sound interesting? I mean, like if you could make a money machine that made I, money, that'd be amazing. I think it almost certainly will start like that. Yeah. Right. Optimizing. Right. Cause yeah. that's where, that's where, that's where the incentives are. That's where the incentives are. Yeah, right. yeah so, exactly. So it'll be some startup or some, uh, some, some, you know, rogue programmer who figures out one detail that really matters, or it'll be some well-funded arm of a big corporation. I mean, um, if you could, I mean, if you could, like, um, if you had software and you had the support would be automated and the, um, if you could automate every, it's so basically automation, automating everything, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Google's trying to do this too, but if you automate everything and then somehow is able to improve itself, like, okay, if the automation wasn't working that well, like people weren't happy with the support, could it, could itself 
try different scenarios and make it better. Like, you know, mm-hmm. they could change the voice of its uh, receptionist who answered the phone, or it could um, have text messages that it sends out for support. Or, I mean, I don't know. There's probably a, b- a bunch of stuff that we, that we can't even imagine because it's in the future. But yeah, I think the first example of this is that uh, malware which encrypts your files and then ramsons it and it makes you pay Bitcoin. Bitlocker. Yeah, and then it has support for getting the Bitcoin and paying the Bitcoin. Automatic support. Well, there's malware to collect email addresses, right? So that's kind of like, you know, it goes out there and it collects all the email addresses and that's making you money because you can sell these email addresses to people. So that's kind of like... That's that's the first kind of example of that. And I think there's going to be more stuff like that for legitimate businesses too. I would, um, I would just, if anyone's interested in looking at that, there's a guy named Mark Goodman who, he's he's a futurist at the FBI, just wrote a whole book on on, on basically all all the technologies we're talking about but for the use of crime mm-hmm. like crime oh, yeah. are super early adopters like they had right, right, pagers right. and cell phones in the 80s oh, when right. only like doctors and mm-hmm. you know they're super early adopters on the yeah. stuff and, yeah. and russian like, mobs using bitcoin the most probably oh, right. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah and silk road and yeah, yeah. i mean so the, so that is but but that doesn't stop technological progress just because the criminals start using you know, using technology to take advantage of others right but then that leaves that, that 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 leaves a problem to solve, and then how do we solve cybercrime and you know the utilization of technology to harm others? Like, what does that what does that solution look like? Is it a a self healing AI that figures out who the bad people are? But know? the criminals are providing a service to somebody, right? I mean, I mean maybe not. Some, I mean, unless it's like you're stealing for yourself. It, I mean, like drug mm-hmm. crime, and that's like you're selling drugs to your friends. Yeah. That's a crime. But I mean. Then we have to like there's, have large there's, there's more than one yeah. category yeah, there when like, it comes to this. I right, think, right, right. There's yeah. more categories, yeah. yeah. There's crimes that are just hurting other people and benefiting you, and there's crimes that are just like providing a service that happens to be illegal. So it's kind of Yeah. We're gonna have to have a wider conversation about what crime is then because <laughs> I like talking about like the the guy Mark I was mentioning talks about this stuff through the lens of life sciences, like borrows like even the same terminology of describing ecological systems, like organisms, what they do is they just try and, you know, find resources and, right. and, and whoever, and, and, you know, finding an ecological niche, like crime is just a version of, of, of like there, there are what we would consider crimes in nature, like, um, you know, like parasites, parasites are an organism that found its ecological niche by like you know, certain uh, living off some host, like stealing its its right. re- its resources, mm-hmm. and so there's a there's a I won't call it a benefit, but there's a there's a role, there's a there's an opportunity there, and I think um, he also he also makes the argument that we should be you know security experts should be pulling from knowledge gained from the CDC, the World Health Organization. How do they treat you know epidemiology and you know. Oh, right, right. Like there's lessons to be learned there mm-hmm. that can inform us about how to solve, you know, crime. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I learned about game theory in the context of biology from reading Richard Dawkins, but it's applicable to like pretty much everything. Uh, it's it just makes a lot. It's crazy. How a lot of sense. If you have lots of agents with different interests and goals, then you can predict complex behavior among lots of agents using that kind of thinking. And it, it's been more explanatory for more things than almost any other uh, topic, I guess, for me. What do you think, you know, what do you think human organization is going to look like in the 21st century? You know, how, how are we going to organize ourselves as we move forward? You know, like, I, I, I don't mean to get too conspiratorial, but will, will we 
see the rise of a world government where you know we'll have world peace, but we won't have but we won't have the the same notions of nationhood or 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 whatever we might have like you know what it what it what it what does it look like you know what does it look like to be organized in the twenty first century you know where we all will we always have wars are we always going to be divided you know by imaginary lines you know is that necessary do we want that you know like what do you think about these questions well i think wars a lot of times caused by just people with different um you know backgrounds different religions different whatever so as communication increases people are going to start becoming more similar so it may be less less conflict like we don't we don't bomb Italy and Europe or whatever because they have kind of the same values and they have the same the same family structures same a lot of same things so I feel like it probably has to do with you know suffering too if there is oh, suffering sure, then you have a need right, of to course. somehow get more resources and people are pissed off they're gonna start bombing people I mean that's just you know even even in this country if some guy's in the ghetto and he's pissed off he's gonna shoot some people so that just happens. Yeah, I also, I also think, I mean, aside from just, you know, more differences on, like, surf, uh, economic interests are just not aligned a lot. I mean, a lot of war, like, why we're allied with, you know, Britain and, and you know, the West is because we have the same economic interests. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the world's biggest problems are also unite the world in terms of we all suffer from the same effects of climate shift and, you know, you know, global pandemics, you know, population growth, like all these things that you will require um, solutions as a result of collaboration across different groups. So I think there is going to be an element of um, more collaboration, more, and it's, and it, I don't think we eliminate the the differences, the, you know, religious, um, you know, ethnic differences, but I do think you'll find, um, just more alignment on just motivations and incentives of, of what problems we solve. So what about things like TPP, you know, the Trans-Pacific uh, Trade Partnership that got signed or is being fast-tracked to get signed and, you know, these trade deals that uh, give, you know, corporations and multinationals, you know, powers beyond what small governments could have. Like, you know, for example, they'll have veto or or have the ability to sue governments that are pursuing laws that might affect their economic interests and thereby giving them huge amounts of power and not only that but there's all these other initiatives on um, taking away internet privacy and you know what else copyright you know violations like what do you guys think about like you know these sorts of giant things that are done in back rooms that people aren't aware of um, and how they relate to our technological advancements. You know, for the longest time we've been fighting um, to keep the internet free and neutral, right? So, you know, I'm sh there, there is, my, my thing is I know there are human interests behind not having a free and open internet, you know, so what do we do? Like, what happens to them? What do you guys think? I don't think it's I don't think it's human interest behind having a free and open internet. I think it's it's I think it's corporate interest, which is very which is a very different thing. Like humans humans make up corporations. Like we're we're a part of corporations, but hum like the human itself is not 
you know, opposing a free and open internet. And, and we live in a world where there's all these different institutions. Like we forget that, you know, a corporation really is like a, a being. It, it is almost like an or- organism and it, it has needs and it has motivations and it has desires. Um, so those, those interests and desires don't align with, with, you know, the people, mm-hmm. uh, in some cases. And I think that's where you get that. Um, I don't, I don't personally think that there's like smoke filled rooms of, you know, elite individuals plotting, you know, the demise of, of, of everyone else. I think it's just a system in which different incentives are held by different people and, and the people that have the most power just have very different incentives than, than people that don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the best way to, to kind of combat it is by building tools that make everyone more powerful individually. And so really good examples of that are encryption. Um, you know, like someone thought of some math and someone else put that together in a program that made that math easy to use. And someone else told a bunch of people about it. And as a group, we now have the ability to talk to each other, knowing that we're mathematically secure as long as we do everything correctly. And, you know, we don't have hardware compromise by the NSA. I mean, we're not, we're not totally secure or anything, but that's the direction we should be going. We should be verifying every step, open source hardware, open source software, open source encryption. We should be able, you know, open source voting. Like, why are we not demanding open source voting? Mm-hmm. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. It, it, the reason is because no one understands what that means. So information, like, the reason. maybe, like, informing people of what, what's going on yeah. is probably more fun. But that's always yeah. been... Always been the problem, yeah, right? Yeah, How do you yeah. change people's minds when you have to use propaganda and um, you know, knowledge of psychology and uh, manipulation as much as everyone else to do anything? And you have to put as much resources as they are to do anything. And so it's really, really, really hard. I, I think people who want to do this need to be way more pragmatic about how you change people's minds mm-hmm. than they are. Last question, you as as we four, Manish, James, Aaron, uh, we're sort of in the same generation, and I, I want to get your thoughts on this too, Steve. Like, you know, I keep hearing the term millennial get thrown around, and I I really don't know what that means to me. Like, it's just this thing that you know a, a group of people figured that hey, let's group these people you know, in, into this box and, and name them this and, you know, make inferences on, on, on who they are. Like, to me, like, to me, what, you know, first of all, what, did that, what does that mean to you? Like, to be a millennial, quote unquote. And what do you think, Steve, like, is, you know, the, the overall idea of what a millennial is? And lastly, like, you know, how do you guys, how, do, how, do, how, how, shall, how should millennials be remembered? Like, if we want to be remembered, if we want to be, you know, like, what is, what is the thing that sets us different from other generations? Or, you know, what, what is our drive? What are, what are we doing? Um, just even as a whole, like, you know, if you're alive right now, like, what are we doing as humans? Like, what's the purpose of where we're going? So I'll, I'll, I'll start. I think I actually think a lot about this um, in terms of like millennials. Very simply, I think the defining, the single defining ca- attribute of, of the millennial generation is the fact that we grew up with the internet. Like fundamentally, just 
growing up native to this thing that just is a, a tool that just pummels information and knowledge into our brain at the click of a mouse is just fundamentally rewired our our psyche, our our, our just collective personality, our collective worldviews. Um, I was listening to a, a podcast by this, another Long Now lecture, this guy, Stephen Johnson, who profiles the in, in studies in pop culture, the, the rise of complexity and the, in the ways that people spend their time. So like in the 70s, the, the island TV show was Gilligan's Island, a relatively simple plot line, simple narrative, whereas in, in the millennial generation, it's, it's lost. You know, like endless amounts of complex narratives and, and, and elements. Uh, you know, playing video games 30 years ago was like Pac-Man, you know, a giant flashing blue dot. Today it's World of Warcraft. I mean, there's just this endless amount of complexity and, 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 and data processing going on in the brain. Um, and I think that, you know, the millennial generation to me is just another way of saying the internet generation. A, a, a group of people that grew up with instantaneous knowledge and, and, and things to know about the world. And I think the other part of that is we're the last generation to see how the world was before that, too. Mm. So, like, yeah. people younger than us don't know what it was like before you always had a phone and before you had Google and before. Yep. But, like, I remember not having the internet, not knowing where my friend is and going out into the town and looking <laughs> for it. You know, like, we were supposed to meet at 11, I think. Yeah. It's like, what do I do now? Uh, well, I wander around. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't know. It was really different back then. Yeah. I remember yeah. getting lost in a Costco and not having a way to find my my parents because I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a GPS beacon on me at all times. Yeah. Now do all kids have a GPS beacon on them? Like, do your parents do that? I would. Uh, the phone, right? Do they? Do, yeah. Like I mean, little kids. Don't don't the parents get little kids get phones, right? Like two year olds. You mean like a right? dog collar where you put like a little collar on them? I would be like that. It'd probably be under the two year olds. I'm three, four, five. Not, I don't know when they get them. How do you not lose your kids these days? You just, you just tag them. <laughs> yeah, okay. tag them off. Wow. What What do you think, Steve? Like, well, I was just gonna comment that I even feel a big generation gap between my age and someone like three or four years older than me, mm. because I was like the first generation where um, kids got Apple Twos, and like the, the first PCs came out when I was like, I don't know, tw- twelve or something. Mm. Uh, so even pe- even like my brother, I mean, he's a he's kind of a tech guy, but he just seems like he's not. He he wasn't young enough when it came out, and he seems very different. I bet every generation has their version of the like. Wow, I can't remember like when life before the internet or life before the Apple II. I bet like right. hundreds of years ago, it was like, wow, imagine life before that like new welding iron. Like, like, yeah, what was before like, the internet? It was before sixteen like, hundred. No, yeah, like the like, printing press. Like, that lasted phew. so long, right? Yeah. yeah. What is the internet gonna last? Yeah. I mean, it's gonna. I, be... I think we just hit the acceleration yeah. where in the last 100 or 200 or arguably yeah. 400 years that's true where the generations are different and now like the difference between generations is more and more and more and more yeah change is manageable because you could change happened across generations now yeah. it's we've hit the yeah. point where it's like within within lifetimes like within generations yeah yeah and that's new that's new for as far as we know in all of the story of human human history but maybe that just puts us all on the same page i guess <laughs> and imagine yeah. like the, the drivers versus the self-driving people like that's gonna be a big jump too like yeah when i was a kid driving was considered cool and macho and now it's like considered like just a pain in the ass and silly yeah 
Um, and eventually it'll be like, you drove a car that seems insane. Uh, you know, yeah. You set in traffic. And <laughs> the, other, the other thing that's yeah. really fascinating about this too is like, if you look at through all of human history, there was always a role for like the wise elder. There was always like the, you know, pipe smoking, cross-legged, bearded elder who would impart knowledge and wisdom about, you know, maybe you shouldn't just walk barefoot through the jungle where there's snakes and stuff. And like you learn. And But we live in a world now where the role of the wise elder, like, we live in a world fundamentally where where any frameworks that we have of the past no longer apply to the future mm-hmm. and and it's really the kids like i'm i'm also i'm like i'm always i'm i'm kind of nervous by this fact that like i will become obsolete and outdated probably like soon and like i'm going to be following what the kid like kids younger than me to figure out where the world's going because i have no clue that's what i'm doing now basically yeah. <laughs> yeah like we're all turning around and like you know the 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 line is like we're all putting our, our hands on the shoulder of the person behind us and like all right you lead now yeah, yeah previous generations would look at the older people and to get to get knowledge and wisdom but now people smart people at least they look backwards and they say yeah hey, young kids what's hot yeah what's cool yeah, yeah. Sooner, very soon, I'm going to have to look for someone who can take over the NTVR podcast because I'm feeling dated already. Like, it's it's just, here's the thing, like, the acceleration thing that you guys are talking about, like, is it going to accelerate so fast that you know, we're not able to, we're not going to be able to keep up? Like, I think uh, in Singularity is near, Kurzweil talks about, like, if you bring a human from 1600 and you bring them to 1700, like, it's not that big of a change. Mm-hmm. But from 1700 to, like, 2015... That person would die. Like they would have a heart attack. Like, what's an airplane? What's the road? What is a, this car thing? You know, what is this internet? Are we, you know, at a point where like we know what life before the internet is? We know what that we have that attachment sort of right. By the time we hit twenty forty five, and I'm sure we're going to be alive in twenty forty five. You know, are are we going to be able to keep up with the pace of change? You know without having to augment ourselves, without having to be constantly drugged or manipulating our brains Not cybernetically some way. Not without that. So I think the that. best outcome is we merge with our technology and we have some continuous experience where we get smarter and more powerful and expand out into the universe. And like that, that's like, that's what we hope for. Mm-hmm. And if we don't do that, something else is going to do that. We won't be a part of it. Okay. I think, unless there's anything else, I think we're going to call it a night. No, this was fun. Thank you guys again. Yeah, thanks for putting it all together. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It lasts uh, really quickly. You go around. um, How how do people can stay in touch with you and, you know, follow up with what you've been up to? Um, Yeah, so Aaron Frank. I'm on Twitter at afrank26. I'm at Singularity University. We have a website, singularityu.org. Yeah, I'm um, at James Blaha and cvividly.com and I'm Manish Gupta uh, Twitter is at Manishiwa um, M-A-N-I-S-H-I-W-A and uh, cvividly.com I'm not on Twitter so uh, you can always email me sgerman s-g-e-h-r-m-a-n at gmail.com awesome thank you once again gentlemen for being true scholars and gentlemen of virtual reality yes sir thank you and